A lot can change in a day. The course of history can shift in just a moment. We know this. On December 8th, uh, 1941, then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt called the previous day, December 7th, a day which will live in infamy because of the attack from Japan's naval forces on the U.S. base at Pearl Harbor. The attack on Pearl Harbor changed the course of history in a direction unexpected by most in the world who just several years before had seen the end of the war to end all wars. In fact, just 23 years earlier, another day changed the course of history when the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in the forest of uh, Compiègne in France, an armistice was signed that would lead to the end of World War I and what many thought would be an unprecedented era of peace in the world, which we know was not the case. The beginnings and endings of wars, which are major events, have the ability to shape history and shape the, the, even the momentum of uh, world events, but so do small things. For instance, I would venture to guess that very few of us know the significance of September 28th, 1928. Raise your hand if you do, but don't give it away. Okay, no one. Good. You're going to learn something today. It was on September 28th, 1928 that Dr. Alexander Fleming made a breakthrough discovery that would lead to the development of penicillin, the first and most widely and safely administered antibiotic in the world. Just one day, one short moment of time, much can change. And today we have yet another example of such a small day with big implications. In fact, an unknown day sometime in either 48 or 49 AD when some Christians met together in Jerusalem. Here in Acts chapter 15, we will see church leaders and apostles gather in the city of Jerusalem around 48 or 49 AD to come together to resolve the problem that was created by supposed Jewish believers who began requiring Gentile converts to Christianity, Gentile believers in Jesus, requiring them to be circumcised and fully converted to Judaism in addition to faith in Christ in order to be saved. The solution given by the Holy Spirit through the council that takes place at Jerusalem here in Acts 15 and through prayer among those that are present is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and that the requirements of the law are not binding upon Gentile, that is non-Jewish Christians. That may not seem like much, but the events that take place in Acts chapter 15 lead to the kind of churches that we're able to have today, where people of all backgrounds, whether you're, whether you're of a Jewish background or Gentile background or American background or, or East Indian or Chinese or Japanese or any sort of background from around, where we can come together uh, knowing that there is salvation only by God's grace through faith in Christ and that there's nothing else needed to be right with God. We'll see from this text this morning, that salvation from sin and eternal life are gifts of God's grace only. Not by our works, not by our merit, not by things that we do for ourselves, but gifts of God's grace only, received only by faith in Jesus. And in fact, to add to this gospel, to to give anything else to it or require anything further than faith in Christ for salvation is to remove the power uh, from the gospel entirely, entirely, excuse me. So as we look at this text this morning in Acts 15, verses 1 through 35, I would hope that as a result, we would know that there is, and we would be committed to the fact that there is but one gospel. There is one Lord, one God, that promises salvation to any who believe. 
and that we would be challenged to remove in our own lives and even in our church unnecessary barriers to gospel fellowship to those of differing conscience or even of differing ethnicity. Let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5 to begin. Would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? There Luke continues in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's fleshing out the history of the early church. He says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church... They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles open this morning as we'll look at the rest of the text this morning, verses 6 through 35, as we move along. But we'll just take it kind of in chunks as it's presented to us. Here in verses 1 through 5, we have first before us the problem. The problem at play in Acts 15. The problem is a confusing teaching. A confusing teaching that that somehow there is salvation not just by God's grace through faith in Christ, but that salvation also comes by Judaism. In both verses 1 and 5, we get an introduction to this new confusing teaching that is going around at Antioch. You remember Antioch is kind of the the home missionary base for Paul and Barnabas, uh, kind of there at the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Luke tells us here that some men, perhaps some false brothers, as Paul refers to them in Galatians chapter 2 verse 4, some came came to Antioch from Jerusalem teaching that in order to be truly saved by Jesus, Gentile believers had to convert fully to Judaism. The simple point they made was likely something like this, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Therefore, to be saved by the Jewish Messiah, one must become a Jew. And for a man, that meant undergoing circumcision at least. We're told in verse 5 that the supposed believing Pharisees, even in Jerusalem, were were part of the group that was making this argument in Jerusalem as well. Now, we're somewhat familiar with the Pharisees, those lovers of the law of God. Their love for the law of God and and devotion to it uh, often uh, surpassed even their, their love for God himself. With circumcision as a cornerstone of keeping the law, they had uh, come to this uh, position of understanding that full conversion to Judaism was the only way to be saved. This is likely what had influenced their wrong teaching. Now it's clear, even from Paul's sermon that we uh, read and saw a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, that Paul had already begun to see justification, uh, salvation, that process of being made right with God, having our sins forgiven. Paul had already begun to see that as a matter of faith in the Messiah and not a function of keeping the law. In fact, he says it is faith in Christ that frees us from everything that the law of Moses could not free us from. The matter of conflict around salvation is then clear. The law, as Jews would call it, Torah, word meaning instruction, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, is neither evil nor wrong. God's law is not a bad thing. 
Rather, Torah, the law, instruction from God, simultaneously confronts and corrects the sinful uh, hearts of people, the sinful impulses that we have. Had any Jew, in fact, ever kept perfect righteousness such that the law was never broken in his life, he would, in fact, not need the law for salvation, for he would always be counted righteous. Right? So the fact that we have sin in our lives, the fact that we disobey God, requires God or, 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 or brings about in God a desire to give a law for us to follow. That law he gives to his people in the Old Testament, his people of Israel. Now, had anybody in Israel been able to keep that law perfectly never to disobey, never to rebel against God, they would demonstrate, in fact, that they needed no law because the law would not apply to them. And yet the law shows us God's holiness. It also shows us our sinfulness. It is a helpful tutor in leading us to see that we need something more than just good behavior to be saved. The law itself comes as a result of both the sin of man and God's covenant with his people. At Sinai, as a living testament to the separate nature of Israel from their surrounding nations, the law talks about God's holiness and how his people are to be holy like he is holy. The law was necessary because of sin, but the law could never be perfectly kept for righteousness. Now, Paul, however, and Peter, too, by the way, as we've seen in the course of Acts, had both come to understand that righteousness and membership in the covenant community of God's people through Christ came only by faith in Jesus, only by faith in the Messiah, and not by keeping or perfectly conforming to the law. Now, this same manner of righteousness, the same manner of being made right with God by faith, Paul has already begun to preach to, to the Gentiles as he went on mission, particularly in Acts chapter 13 and in 14. Thus, the obvious conflict uh, that we see here when these Judaizers, those who are trying to force uh, conversion to Judaism as part of being saved, thus the conflict that comes when they show up in Antioch and in Jerusalem and begin to teach that if you want to be saved, you've got to first become a Jew. The problem is this confusing teaching in Antioch and in Jerusalem. But we see in these verses, verses 1 through 5, also the course of action that the church in Antioch takes. And that course of action is to go to the source, go to an authority on this issue. The confusion over how it is that one is saved leads to such debate in Antioch that the church determines that there is need for an authoritative answer and solution to this question at hand. So, to get that answer, the church at Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas back down south to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders and the church there. The church recognizes the potential that this confusing teaching has, not only to split the church at Antioch, but even to overturn the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone that they've been preaching to Gentiles for years now. All the same, I think we see here the humility of the church to say, in gathering together, you know what? If we've, been missing it, if we've been missing it, if we've misunderstood the gospel, we need to come together around God's word to know so that we can correct the course before it's too late. There's such a love for the gospel and for the word of God that the church goes to pains in order to, to speak clearly about it, to determine what is true. As we see what the church at Antioch does in sending Paul and Barnabas in light of this confusing teaching... I think there are ways that we can respond, we can live even obediently to God's word in our own lives. And and at least one way is this, that when you are confronted with confusing doctrine, a confusing teaching about how, how someone is to be saved or to be in a right relationship with God, when someone says something to you that seems unfamiliar or different from the gospel that we preach here every week, 
Seek clarity from Scripture and from trusted sources. Okay? When a confusing doctrine comes your way, seek clarity from Scripture and from trusted sources. Now, at this point, I could give us all manner of examples of false and confusing doctrines to watch out for. Uh, people who may knock on your door that you may have questions about later this afternoon. But, but if I were to run down that laundry list of things, uh, of false doctrines to watch out for, that would only serve, I think, to distract us from the point. Often having a list of false and confusing doctrines to guard against only causes our attention to focus on what is not true as opposed to what is true. So rather this morning, I would point us again to the Word of God that we have before us today and each day. This unchanging, never-changing, never-failing Word of God which speaks truth to error day after day. This word is true and it is trustworthy. These 66 books that we call the Bible are like a lighthouse on a rocky shore in the deep of night warning us of unseen jetties that threaten to sink our faith. So friend, when you're confronted with confusing doctrine, look to the word. Follow those who point you clearly to it. We see the problem at Antioch and in Jerusalem. And then in verses 6 through 21, as the action in Acts 15 moves from Antioch down south to Jerusalem, we see then this proposal, a proposal for a resolution to the issue. We read there in verses 6 through 21 the following. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, speaking of Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the house, the the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, James continues, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. We have here this proposal for a resolution, a solution to this uh, false or confusing doctrine that is being spread in the area. And as they begin in this council together, the apostles, the elders of the church in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, along with the rest of the church there in that city, they begin by recalling previous truths. Specifically, that we were never required, we we never required conversion to Judaism from among the Gentiles before. And in verses 7 through 11, Peter gives a speech to all those who are gathered. In verses 7 through 9, Peter relates again his travels to Cornelius' house from, uh, in Caesarea from Acts chapter 10. 
He says, the early days. He says, you remember the early days when I took the gospel to the Gentiles, indicating that the, the events that are taking place in Acts 15 are, are sometime removed from what happened uh, at Cornelius' house in Acts 10. So that is to say, several years have passed where the gospel has been going to the Gentiles, saying that they can be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ with no added works of the law. So in the early days, we were preaching this message of, gra- uh, of salvation by grace through faith alone. The choice that the gospel should go to the Gentiles through Peter was not of men, Peter says, but even from God himself. God's the one who directed Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Again, God, who alone knows the hearts of men, saw the hearts of Cornelius and those who were in, their, in his house, those Gentiles hearing the gospel, and knowing their faith in Christ Jesus, God confirmed their faith in the presence of Peter and the others who were with him by giving the Holy Spirit to those Gentiles in Cornelius' house in the exact same way that he gave the Holy Spirit to those first Jewish believers gathered together in that upper room at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. All of this was done without circumcision. Without, uh, without circumcision for conversion to Judaism or for salvation. As Peter notes in verse 9, God made no distinction between the Gentiles who received the gospel that day and the Jews who had already understood and believed in Christ as their Messiah. God gave them a clear conscience, not by works of the law, but through grace-based, faith-received justification and a right relationship with God. Then in verses 10 and 11, Peter asks the obvious question of those who are listening. If nothing more was required of the Gentiles in those early days, if we've been doing it this way for so long and we've not seen any error with it so far, why should there be something new added now? Furthermore, what good would it do to put on the shoulders of Gentile believers the added yoke of the law, of keeping the regulations of the people of Israel from the Old Testament, which even the Jews had demonstrated that they could not keep? That is to say, if we can't do it, Peter's saying, why would we ever expect them to be able to do it? He closes with the statement that the Gentiles shall be saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He confirms that. He affirms that in this gathering, in this council at Jerusalem. Gentiles will be saved the same way that Jews will be saved, by faith in the Messiah. There's no salvation apart from God's grace through our faith, through our trust in Jesus, and there is no grace added nor subtracted by conversion to Judaism. Peter begins by recalling these previous truths. And the text continues in verse 12 where the council or those who are present evaluate present realities. So they look to the past to see what God has done. They look presently at what God continues to do. And there we see in verse 12 that God continues to to, uh, demonstrate that believing Gentiles have the Holy Spirit the same as believing Jews do. In verse 12, the whole group falls silent, Luke says, perhaps by conviction of their own actions in the past and Peter's helpful reminder of what previously had taken place. Further, Paul and Barnabas stand up and they begin to share all that's been going on in their missionary journeys throughout uh, all of Asia and, and Galatia talking about everything that they'd seen happen by the hand of the Lord in those places, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, that we saw over the last two weeks in Acts 13 and 14, and what had been taking place even in Antioch. Everywhere Paul and Barnabas went with the gospel among the Gentiles, the Lord granted signs and wonders to be done that confirmed the testimony of the gospel and the faith of the Gentiles in those places. So the gospel is preached without requirement for the law by Peter when it first began. They've been doing that for 10 years. In the present moment, God seems to still be around the world confirming that the gospel, that that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ only, without added works of the law. God's Holy Spirit continues to 
give affirmation of this concept. And then in verses 13 through 31, the group comes together to chart a consistent path forward. To, to come to a resolution is, well, how do we deal with this issue? And, and the nature of the path moving forward is this, that no new burden shall be added to the Gentiles or to anyone who comes to salvation through faith in Jesus. No new burden shall be added except for mutual deference to one another. Verses 13 through 18 there we see following up on, on uh, he calls him Simeon, but uh, Peter's statement, James, says that indeed God has always intended to create for himself a people for his own glory from among the Jews, but even from among the Gentiles. And he cites here in verse 16, Amos, the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, to make his point. Even though he says it's technically from all of the prophets that we could make this argument, but he keys in on Amos specifically here. Now, the passage from Amos, if we were to go back and look at that this morning, the passage from Amos that James is citing looks forward to a day when, as James says, and as as Amos calls it, the tent of David, that is the, the kingdom, the people of Israel, God's people will be restored. And the restoration of Israel is taking place in the course of Acts as the risen Jesus, the Messiah, the heir to David's throne, is making for himself a people, the true Israel, who will be a people of circumcised heart, not just of flesh, by grace through faith and not merely in the flesh by the hands of men. Amos is being fulfilled in the course of Acts as the risen Lord Jesus makes a people for himself. As the heir to David's throne, as the Messiah who was promised that would come in David's line, is gathering for himself a people. This era of a people of God who are both Jew and Gentile is the day that Amos and the prophets spoke of and looked forward to. This is James' argument. It's Peter's and Paul's argument even later on in the different places that they write in the New Testament as well. But I want you to hear the same argument from Paul's own words and from a slightly different perspective in Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 29. Now, Paul writes his letter to the church in Galatia to specifically confront a false gospel that had, that had begun to pervert the understanding of who Christ is and how salvation is received in that area of Galatia. And in Galatians 3, verses 25 through 29, Paul says this, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The path, Paul says, of unity going forward must be consistent with what God has clearly revealed in Scripture and about how God is going to build His kingdom. It will be a kingdom of Jews and Gentiles who are made right with God through faith alone. So says James, so says Paul. We cannot force, gospel, we cannot force Gentile believers to perform the ritualistic duties of the law in addition to faith in Christ. Verses 19 and 20, James continues. He says, Rather than imposing the ritual and ceremonial law upon the Gentiles who are of the faith, James suggests four requirements that will prevent schism in the church, that will prevent division in the church over this issue, and, uh, and will ultimately help to maintain table fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers who exist in the same churches around the world. He gives four requirements. Three of them, the first, the third, and the fourth, 
The first being abstain from things polluted by idols. The third, which says uh, uh, abstain from what has been strangled. And the fourth, and from blood. All have to do with things that Jews who were still, Jews who were believers in Jesus, but were still living according to the dietary laws that God had given in Leviticus, keeping kosher. Right? If Gentiles had, uh, in the presence of Jewish believers, eaten food that was previously offered as a sacrifice to idols, that food would be considered by Jewish brothers and sisters to be unclean. And so to eat that food in the presence of Jewish believing Christians would be to, to harm their conscience in some way. Uh, that, that believing Jew would not be able to eat at that table with that Gentile brother or sister. The same thing with what has been strangled and the same thing from consuming blood. So Paul says, look, If there are dietary changes that you can avoid, right, avoid them for the sake of being able to eat together. Eating together is so important as as a a family of faith, gathering together around the table to just enjoy time together. All the Baptists said, amen. Maybe I'm not in a Baptist church this morning. I don't know what happened, but... we, it's good for believers to eat together. There's lots of good fellowship that happens around the table. And 2,000 years ago, uh, uh, here in, uh, in ancient times, sharing a meal with people was a, the, sort of the ultimate uh, um, uh, demonstration of hospitality and love for others. So James and the apostles are saying, let's, let's just ask the Gentiles to not do anything that, that would break table fellowship with our Jewish believing brothers and sisters. Then he gives a, a, a fourth requirement. It's the second in his list, which is to abstain from sexual immorality. And the word that is used by James here is the Greek word porneia, which, which indicates it's kind of a general term for all manner of sexual perversion, adultery, fornication, uh, homosexuality as well. In that day, it's known that Jews had a far more stringent and biblical sexual ethic than the Greeks did. The injunction against such things, against uh, this kind of pornea, this sexual immorality, the injunction against those things for Gentile believers is not a concession to the Jews. It's not, they're not asking the Gentiles to compromise something in their lives so much as it is just expected consistency with God's own character and with what God himself has communicated about sexual ethics and his own expectations. So the only things that they asked the Gentiles to do are, one, not eat food that Jews would consider unclean so you can share meals together. And by the way, don't be engaging in sexual relationships with things and people that you ought not be doing. From all this, we find that the way forward for unity in the church and protection of the gospel uh, must take a strong stand on the non-negotiables of the gospel. That is this. When it comes to the fact that Jesus died and rose again to provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who trust in him and only trust in him, there is no movement there. There is no concession there. There's only agreement in those facts of the gospel. But in other matters of church life and fellowship among believers, the way forward is to pursue unity by deferring to one another when consciences may conflict. What does that mean for us in the church today? doesn't mean for, for we who in this church are probably all of Gentile background, who don't have issues with eating certain kinds of food, we'll, we'll eat uh, surf and turf uh, at the same time, right? It's not an issue for us. Uh, generally, we agree upon, you know, this, uh, the, this biblical sexual ethic uh, among those who are uh, uh, saved by faith in Christ. So what, when we see this, this proposal uh, put forward by James and the other apostles, what, what do we do with it? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, I think, at least in one way, and that is this, that where the gospel is clear, we as a church, First West, we stand firm. 
Where the gospel is clear, we stand firm. And where consciences are in conflict, we defer to one another with grace. So when it comes to the gospel, we will always affirm the simple mathematical equation that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That is, faith in Jesus plus anything else equals no salvation. There is only salvation in Christ and only salvation in trusting in him. We affirm that this morning. We will never defer to a gospel that says we can save ourselves. We will never entertain a gospel that says everything is all right and sin is not a problem. We will never give heed to a gospel that says that Jesus died for you to be happy and healthy and rich. We will never teach, we will never follow a gospel that says Jesus Christ is anything less or anything other than the very Son of God, one with the Father himself, who was born a man to die as an atoning sacrifice for sins. We will not concede on any of these points. But friends, we will refuse to draw lines of fellowship around smaller things. We will refuse to draw lines between our, our, the fellowship of believers here around things like believers who have tattoos. We will refuse to draw lines around certain social and political opinions. We will refuse to draw lines around countries of origin, color of skin, whether we homeschool our kids or send them to public school. We will refuse to draw lines around things like whether you prefer red or green chili on your huevos rancheros. The point is this. The never-changing gospel of Jesus Christ is the center and the glue of the church. It's the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life with our Creator that is made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf, whom we follow as Lord by faith in Him that is the most important thing among us. There is nothing higher on our list of priorities as a church than the gospel, than the truth of who Jesus is. But in nearly every other manner, in every other matter, we can learn to bear with one another in patience in grace, and in love as we all follow Christ Jesus together. And by the way, the answer is Christmas. Red and green on your huevos. Amen. So when I go to lunch with, I, I'm, I'm deferring from, uh, de- deterring from my, my notes here for a second. When I go to lunch with, uh, with people in the church and we go somewhere that serves New Mexican food and they ask red or green, I always say both because I want to become all things to all people that by <laughs> all means I may save some. Back to God's word. The problem is this confusing teaching that says that there, can, there can be salvation. There's salvation when you add becoming a Jew to, uh, to, to faith in Jesus. The proposal that is put forward by those uh, who gather together in this council in Jerusalem is to walk forward uh, steadfastly con- convinced and convicted of the truth of the gospel, but with grace in these other matters so that we can maintain fellowship and love with one another. In verses 22 through 35, we have the final resolution of this problem. Luke continues there in verse 22. He says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And this is the text of the letter they sent. The brothers, both the apostles and elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling to your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Here's the resolution that comes as a result to this, uh, comes in response to this problem. First of all, the gospel wins. The gospel wins. Verses 22 through 29 recall Paul and Barnabas uh, with Jerusalem church delegates Silas and Judas Barsabbas delivering the letter that the apostles have dictated to the church at Antioch and uh, and to other churches along the way in Syria and Cilicia. Now the content of this letter is virtually exactly the same as the conclusion reached at the assembly in Jerusalem uh, which James himself puts forward. The gospel of salvation by God's gift of grace received by faith is affirmed. The gospel wins the day, and the gospel wins the debate. There's no requirement now for circumcision. There's no requirement for conversion to Judaism given to Gentile Christians. And the same requirements for living in ways that preserve the unity of the church are upheld. There is one small difference, however, between the letter and what is said by James in Jerusalem earlier in our passage this morning. In verse 28, I hope you saw it there. The letter indicates that the resolution given to the problem was not just pleasing to the apostles and the elders and those who are gathered together at the church in Jerusalem, but this resolution was particularly pleasing to the Holy Spirit. Though subtle, this is an important recognition in the course of Acts as the Holy Spirit is so intimately involved in everything that is happening in the life of the early church. There's, there's hardly a page uh, that, that, that goes by in the course of Acts where the Holy Spirit and his activity is not mentioned. And it's incredibly important for us to know that the, the personal presence of God through his Holy Spirit is all over the church in its early days. There's not a decision that is made. There's not a place that has gone to. There's not a person who is preached to apart from the help and the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, the Holy Spirit has been the authenticating sign of the gospel in every place that the gospel has been preached. It's the very authority by which the first missionaries themselves have been sent out. We saw that in Acts chapter 13. None of us should ever assume that the council at Jerusalem, the resolution that was reached there, that those who met together came to their final position apart from prayer and fasting and dependence upon the Holy Spirit as in almost every other instance of serious decision in the course of Acts. The Holy Spirit is all over this, protecting the gospel and the unity, the fellowship of the church. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes with him, friends, the gospel wins this debate. Not only does the gospel win, but we see in verse 31, the church rejoices. Verse 31 tells us that as these men, Paul and Barnabas, uh, uh, Judas and Silas, deliver and read the letter that the, church, that, that the council had written, the church, uh, to quote Luke, rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is an encouraging letter. Godly wisdom and biblical instruction always lead to rejoicing in the church. There's rejoicing because the gospel has remained unchanged and unity is preserved in the church. 
Gentile believers are not obligated to add a new burden to their faith. And Jewish believers can rest assured that they may continue close table fellowship around dinner tables and other places and at the Lord's table, especially with their Gentile brothers and sisters. And no one has to compromise their sincerely held beliefs and individual callings in life. Jews don't have to stop being Jews in order to follow Jesus. And Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to follow Jesus. The church rejoices because of this resolution. And finally, we see that the mission of the gospel continues. The mission continues. Because the gospel wins the day, because church unity is preserved, the mission of the gospel through the body of Jesus Christ called the church is able to continue unimpeded in the world. Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch teaching the disciples there. Silas and Judas, after encouraging the church for some time, return back to Jerusalem. This one event, friends, this one event early in church history that had all of the potential to destroy the church forever, to split the church along Jewish and Gentile lines, ends in the most anticlimactic but exciting way ever. There's this huge problem, so big that a group of leading Christians has to meet in Jerusalem to solve it, and at the end of the day, nothing happens. I mean, everything happens, but also nothing happens. They come to the perfect conclusion in the perfect way, and everyone who's saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who has the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, says, oh yeah, that's a good answer. Let's just move along with the mission. It's amazing. The division that loomed like a dark cloud on the horizon of the church was dispelled by the light of the gospel and the truth of God's word. The church that teetered on the edge of division has its footing restored and even strengthened in love for Christ and for one another. The mission of the gospel, which was nearly slowed to a total halt, emerges with greater vigor and momentum than ever before here in the middle of Acts chapter 15. And all of this is because God imparts the simplest, clearest point of wisdom at just the right time that causes the whole church to collectively realize that all is preserved when the church pursues the truth of God's word and love and grace for one another. So much can be overcome in terms of conflict in the life of the local church and the global church when we gather together around the center, around the glue of our faith, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation by God's gift of grace through faith in Christ alone. And when we just strive to love one another. As a result of what we see, this resolution to this potentially great problem in the church in Acts 15. I would encourage us to do this. Love, cherish, Pursue and encourage the unity that comes through the gospel of Jesus. That's the application for you today. That's a point for you today. Love the unity that comes through the gospel of Jesus. Love the fact that Christ brings different people together in the gospel. Cherish it. Value it. Right. Put it up on the high shelf in your heart to, to love this truth and, 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 and to just be so devoted to the fact that Jesus brings unity between different people. Pursue it. Strive for it. Set unity in the gospel as a goal for your daily life and for your interaction with brothers and sisters in this church and encourage it among others. Don't just do it in, in your own life. Don't just strive for this uh, in yourself, but, but encourage unity that comes through the gospel of Jesus. So brother, sister, you see another church member who's being divisive about something that is not central to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You encourage them to pursue, pursue unity in the never-changing gospel and to let these things that cause division, to let them go by. All right? 
call each other out in love and truth and in grace. Speak, speak truth to one another. Don't be afraid to convict uh, one another or, or call other people to account when they are setting division in the church because God has not saved us and brought us together to be divisive, but to be united in the gospel. So if people are creating division in the church over things that are not central to the gospel, lovingly, caringly, but truthfully, correct them and point them, encourage them to pursue unity that comes in the gospel of Jesus. And Paul wrote the church in Ephesus the following words from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He writes this, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Christian, can you truly say that you love the unity of the body of Christ like Paul loves the unity of the body of Christ here in Ephesians? Has the beauty of what Jesus has done for sinners at the cross, has it caused in you a love for those who are saved by his grace? Has the removal of your sin, which is symbolized by your baptism in the name of the triune God, has it caused you to have patience and grace for your Christian brothers and sisters when they sin against you? Dear friend, if you have tasted the grace of God through faith in Jesus, trusting him only to be made right with your creator, you ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace amongst your church family. And with God's help at First West, we will. We will. As we truly and deeply and sincerely follow Jesus, the world will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have one for another. A love that is rooted in the glorious promise of salvation that comes by God's grace, through faith, and by no other means in the risen Lord Jesus. That's the promise of the gospel. That those who are committed to it will be united in Christ. And that that we will, as a body, those who are truly saved, we will pursue this. We will be eager to maintain unity in the body for the sake of the gospel and the testimony of Jesus and the fellowship that we have with one another around our tables at home and especially around the Lord's table when we gather for the Lord's Supper together. Friend, if you don't know this morning the kind of life, the kind of love, the kind of unity with other people, because you don't yet know Christ the way that we at First West claim to know Christ, if you're not yet trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life with God, for a right relationship with your Creator, I would urge you this morning, I'd plead with you this morning, commit your life to Christ today. Recognize the sin that separates you from God. In sorrow, confess your sins to God and confess your intent to turn from your sins and to turn to follow God in obedience to Him and trust your life Not just a little bit, but all of it. Trust all of your life. Entrust it to Jesus who died to pay the penalty for your sins and who rose from the dead to give you eternal life with God and the promise of resurrection from the dead for you as well. 
and entrusting Jesus for those things, you'll become a part of the family of faith that God calls his church, whether you're Jewish or Gentile or American or African or Asian or Mexican or whatever the case may be. We are all together united in the gospel of Jesus and pursuing unity together in the gospel that never changes. Friend, if you don't know Jesus and that kind of fellowship with others because you've not trusted him yet, I ask you, trust him today. Trust him today. Give your life to Jesus today. Be saved from your sins. Be forgiven of your sins. Enter into the new kind of life that God stands ready to give you in in his own power and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit in your life as you trust in Jesus. In just a moment, we'll sing a song of response together. And as we do, the Lord is leading you to, to make a decision, a public decision, either to trust him or to, to, to follow him, maybe on mission with the gospel. Maybe the Lord is calling you in some other way this morning, calling you to respond to him obediently. You take this time as we sing a song of response to be obedient to what the, what the Lord is calling you to do. I'll be standing here. Uh, Corey, our student minister, will be standing here as well to, to greet you, to counsel with you, to pray with you about whatever you may need to, to pray about or seek wisdom on. If you just want to come and kneel at the front and pray and ask for God to work in you this week and to, to pursue, to love the unity that the gospel brings, the way that, that Paul and the, the early church had, you come and pray for those things. Pray for our church this morning as we strive for unity in the gospel above all else. However the Lord is calling you to respond to his word today, you do it. Don't delay. Don't be disobedient. Don't wait another moment. Respond to God today. Let's pray.